You've been listening to The Passion of Ethel Rosenberg, the one-woman three-act play by Edward Morris, starring Carrie Pagetta, premiered in 2017 in Nashville, Tennessee, and was presented here as a three-episode podcast. I'm Natasha Sinyanovich. I'm talking to playwright Edward Morris and actor Carrie Pagetta. Hi. Hello. Hello. So, Edward, this is the first time that we're meeting, and I'm really happy to meet you. I... Uh, sat. I was. T- I told. I wrote to Carrie the other day. I sat down to listen to just a little bit of of the podcast, um, the play, before before work the other day, and then just put off what I was doing and listened all the way through because it it grabbed me immediately. And um, so my my first question is is I mean this the the standard question. You were a an English professor. You are a renowned assistant professor. Assistant professor. <laughs> A great um, academic distinction. <laughs> <laughs> you are renowned um, for your career in journalism, writing about country music, writing about the country music industry. How and is Ethel is is the Passion of Ethel Rosenberg your first play? Yes. It, okay, that's that's what I thought. How does Ethel Rosenberg, given your given your your career, how does Ethel Rosenberg become the subject of your first play? Well, paralleling my career was also a fairly heavy investment into left-wing politics. So um, that's that's why I became interested in the Rosenbergs generally. I started on the play because a neighbor, a lady who had worked in some community theater, was lamenting the lack of roles for women of her age. And I thought at the time, well, why don't you just write a one-woman play like Hal Holbrook did with Mark Twain or as happened with um, Emily Dickinson, you know, the Belle of Amherst. And since she didn't do it, (laughs) I I decided that Ethel would be the, Ethel, in my opinion, would be the best one to write about. And, of course, the inherent drama, the drama of leaving two children behind, the drama of being allowed to separate your fate from that of your husband and still um, deciding that you will go to the death chamber with him. So it had all the dramatic elements. I just tried to give her a life that um, we could only assume up to that point. Edward, apart from wanting to create a role for, for uh, and I, I don't want to say an older woman, but unfortunately by Hollywood standards, older is often anything over 30, um, you know, for, for, for women, what other, what other impetus was there behind the play? What, you know, it's a very political play. So was there a connection to, was there any kind of what you felt was a connection to modern? There always is. There always is. As long as, as long as, you know, you have such a great imbalance between the, the rich and the poor, it's always there. Uh, when you have, um, her rather, Ethel's rather frail defense team against the, uh, you know, Roy Cohn and Irving Saypool and Judge Kaufman, then uh, you've got something that's like today where, where there's just an imbalance in the, in, in the judiciary. So I, I, I think, to me, she just represented humane values, humane values that have a very hard time getting into politics 
that are constantly being rolled back, that constantly have to be fought for. And that, that's what inspired me about her. Tell us about your research process. How long did it take? When did you, from, from, the, from when you really began researching it to when it premiered in 2017, and what were the sources that you used primarily for the research? I read about Ethel, <coughs> excuse me, I read about Ethel over a period of months. But when I decided to actually start taking notes and writing the play, I think that took about six months. And my primary source was the uh, book that Michael Mirapol, Ethel's oldest child, had compiled of, of her and her husband's prison letters. It's really an enormous book. And in it, she reveals so much about herself, you know, the kind of music she likes, what kind of game she plays with the children, what she uses to uh, uh, acclimate to being a young mother, uh, what some of the political activities were. So the main source was the prison letters. And there was a book by Philipson. Philipson was her last name. And, and it was a, a book about just about Ethel's life, the sort of the chronology of her life. That gave me something to hang on, but the uh, nature of Ethel herself arose from reading the prison letters. Did you have an actor in mind while you were writing it? Or and if, if not, can you talk a little bit about the casting process and, and how? It was, an, it was an academic exercise at first. I just wanted to be able to say I'd written a play. I, I love the one-person format. And I just thought, at worst, at least I will have something that I've done. And after I did that, I, I thought, well, maybe it does have prospects for being staged. So I contacted Carolyn German here in Nashville, who is a producer and playwright herself, and she cast Carrie for it. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, it was inspired casting on her part, but initially I just did it as an academic exercise. And then as I became more enamored of it, I thought, well, let's see if we can get it produced. So that's how that happened. Now, Carrie, you've been acting for, for a number of years. Was this the first time that you had done a one-woman play? It was, yes, <clears throat> under much trepidation. <laughs> um, how did you go about preparing the, 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 the role? Well, uh, so Carolyn German directed the, <clears throat> the stage play, and uh, we just worked diligently to find this character together. They had done, prior to us staging it, um, Ed and Carolyn had done at least one stage reading. Is that right, or were there two? It was just one. We did what she called a black box reading, and, and it, was just, it was just that. It was a reading. It was not in, intended to be an acting. We wanted to see the length of it. We wanted to see where it dragged, we, you know, just the editorial concerns we had with it. Ed was hands-on and invited to rehearsals before we opened, so that if there was phrasing or words that I was stumbling on or that took me out of the character, out of the moment, we had an open dialogue to discuss it. Some of the things were non-negotiable, and I, I respect that. And then other things we 
just finessed a bit under Carolyn's vision and guidance. The only thing that I felt was important was that her politics not appear to be screwy, that uh, that she that she had a political foundation and a system, and uh, she obviously took it seriously enough to die for it. And I didn't want to I didn't want it to be some kind of parody of left wing politics, or you know, an unfortunate mistake of youth. In fact, yeah, there's a, there's a great line. Um... Uh, just that shows also how self-aware she is. But when she, when she talks about workers' rights, when when there's a, I mean, she does throughout the play. But um, uh, when she says, you know, what do you expect from a commie recipes, <laughs> which is, which which was great. And I mean, I, I think in in a way, it, it it very quickly, very succinctly, summed up um, that you know that she wasn't going to be just to, that she's she's not just someone who wants to be pigeonholed. Mm. Um, and she really, she really, from what I understand, had a sense of humor in a way about her. <clears throat> and I think Ed captured that so clearly. There's a scene in the play where she uh, sings this ditty that she sang to the prison guards. Well, that was taken verbatim from the prison letter. She actually did, you know, Who's Afraid of the Big Electric Chair? And, and she was saying that to the prison guard, she really did have a regard for them. Uh, you know, what's it like, you know, when I'm dead? You know, the, the women that have become uh, used to me. I didn't put it in the play, of course, because it occurred after her death, but there was a guard who uh, accompanied her to the execution, and the guard broke down crying. So, uh, you know, she did, she did make friends with the people who were her captors. I, mean, I found her altogether a remarkable woman. Yeah, I mean, she, she, she. It comes across very much how how she identified with with the workers of that situation, which were the prison mm-hmm. guards. Um, in in researching the material and preparing for the role, did either of you ever speak to Robert and Michael Mirapol, the their Julius and Ethel's sons? I didn't. Um... I had no way of doing it. Uh, I had read where they had sued a lawyer once for misrepresenting their mother. Uh, uh, Louis Neiser, I believe, was the lawyer who had uh, written a book about the uh, Rosenbergs. And I thought, you know, I, I was rather cavalier about it. I thought Ethel's public domain. You know, she's a character about whom much is written. Of course, she appears in Angels in America. Uh, so I, I, I didn't try to contact them. Oddly enough, though, after the play was produced in New Mexico, uh, Michael contacted me. And uh, I sent him uh, the play. I sent him, uh, or I put him onto the uh excerpt of the play that's on YouTube. And he looked at that and he wrote me back. He said, it's pretty good. No, it's damn good. So (laughs) I took that to be sort of an endorsement. Michael, when uh, he contacted me, had just lost his wife to cancer. So he he was apologetic to me for not getting back sooner. But I, I got the feeling that he was at a stage in his life where um, stuff about his mother was sort of a secondary concern. Uh, the year before, he and uh, Robert had uh, gone on this campaign to have Obama 
to pardon his mother. Uh, it, it never went anywhere, but uh, I don't know whether that exhausted them or not. So that's three presidents who have not responded to appeals. I know there's the the documentary that the uh, Michael Mirapol's daughter Ivy made, heir to an execution, in which they they pretty much confirmed that yes, there it, it may the the declassified documents may be entirely made up, but it is likely that Julius was in the decade before, um, in the decade before they were arrested, that he was some kind of informant or spy, possibly for for the Russians, for the Soviet Union. In, and it's interesting what some of the family members there say because that that puts her that puts Ethel in a different light. And one one family member says, "Well, then he allowed her to be killed. Julius allowed his wife to be to be killed." There is, uh, I believe, it's Michael, right, who says her, her their son who says, "Well, she was a hostage. The the you know the government did what they're never supposed to do when dealing with terrorists, which is take a hostage, play chicken, and then allow the hostage to die." <laughs> So that adds this this whole other layer to the depth of Ethel, right? To the choices that she made. How how much did that inform you, um, Carrie, when you were when you were thinking about all that? Because there's there are, there are all these other questions. It's she was never she, there's there there seems to be no documentation that shows that she was any kind of a kind of a, a informant or spy. Um, but how much did that inform? your creation of this role, your, your embodying her. Yeah, well, I struggled with it. Our twins were only six months old when I started the process. And being a new mom, I had a really hard time imagining making the decision she made or allowing it. But again, this is all conjecture. I, I feel like she didn't lose hope that they would be exonerated. I mean, she never, she never faltered. And how many times can you say I'm innocent and I haven't done this and it falls on deaf ears? It's, it's relevant today, you know, and we see it in the justice system. And the case has been appealed so many times, they just ran out of chances to... I, I just wonder if the last two weeks before the execution, if she was just living in a state of shock, or like she had, or if she had really come to terms with it, or you know, thought maybe there was another way. I don't know. It's a heavy thing to work through because I have a lot of passion for her and and her conviction not to sell anybody out or give names. And she, she really didn't take an easy path, and that had to come with its challenges. I say the sons never believed their father was complicit until I think Morton Sobel um, convinced them that he was. But, um, you know, even even at the time that when David Greenglass, the uh, Ethel's brother, had gotten a, a mere 15-year sentence, which later on was reduced to nine and a half years. I mean, it was so obvious that the government was screwing them over. The, go the government was just using them to leverage each other. It was not that their crime was that horrid because Greenglass had admitted to his part in the crime and uh, no execution for him. 
percentage-wise, how how much of what she says in the play comes directly from? I mean, I I know it's impossible to give a direct percentage, but 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 roughly, how much of what she says in the play comes directly from the letters, and how much was was creative poetic license? If you're talking about verbatim, virtually none of it is. I don't think I stole a single sentence from her. Well, no, I'll I'll be I'll I'll change that. She did have the poem that she reads at the end. That is, uh, that is a poem she actually wrote. So that is actually Ethel, all that. But other than that, I can't think of any sentences that were her sentences. But I know what she talked about and how she talked about playing games with the kids and how she talked about her psychiatrist and all that. So I think although the words were mine, the principles and the essence were always hers. And was the music in there from the beginning? Was her, was she going to be singing? Did you know that she was, I mean, she's, she's known for her, among her family and friends, she was also known as having a wonderful voice. Did you write that in there or did that come about once you got a, a, uh, this poly-talented actor on board? No, the, the songs, my dad used to sing, uh, where do we go from here, boys? Where did we go from here? He was born in 1901. He was a little older than Ethel. So I knew that was a World War I song that she might have sung because it was very popular at the time. Uh, one song I made up, uh, and the um, Kevin Barry, she talks in the uh, play about Kevin Barry, you know, who, the Irish patriot who was hanged by the British. So uh, when Carrie sings about, you know, Kevin Barry, that is, uh, Ethel did it, but she didn't do it in the letters, obviously, you know, but she was a fan of the song. She was, a, uh, according to her letters, a great fan of folk music, which is understandable since it tended to be left-wing at the time, too. So, Carrie, as a, as a poly-talented, as a multi-talented actor, the fact that there was, I mean, you ha- and you have a very beautiful voice, the fact that there was music, was that an additional, was that a help? for you to get into the into the role, especially because you were talking about as a new mother, it was hard for you, it was challenging for you to understand certain choices. I mean, the, the, the overarching, overarching choice, the overarching choice that, that Ethel made. Um, was, was the music a, a little bit more of an in to her? And were there other things that you could use to, to sort of ground yourself in this, in this role? I think so. I think I found connection to her when she talked about doing theater and acting and really enjoying the expression of singing throughout her late teenage years. I don't like to sing as myself, so singing as a character is a little bit easier for me. It makes me feel more connected to that character. I just get a little too anxious to do it just as me, so I definitely felt connected to her in that way. How did the podcast idea come about? Was this something that you had known you were going to do that eventually turn it into an audio production, an audio play? Was it something that because we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, there is both a little more time sometimes to do things or, or you know, everybody's brains are uh, thinking about all the various projects that they haven't done and would like to do? And, and what's, what's the genesis of the podcast? So Ed and 
his daughter Erin and I have been talking since we staged the play about filming the play, and we've talked uh, to a different, a couple different production companies. I'm not a producer, and so um, between us, that part of the project and filming it as a one-person play has had its starts and stops. And after the pandemic started, Ed and Erin reached out to me, and Erin asked if I would like to do a live reading on Facebook or YouTube. And I was so flattered that they asked, but I thought it would be really boring just having me read. I'm not even sure I'd want to watch myself doing it, even though I'm the, the content and Ed's words are so compelling. And when I talked to Joe Pagetta about it, he just said, what about a podcast? I'm not really well-versed in listening. I've only listened to a couple, but... Something about that suggestion really struck a chord. So I reached out to Ed and said, what about this? And also, I wanted it to be different than a traditional podcast. I I had this idea of radio play, so the sound effects were really important to me. And then I talked to my brother about engineering it after I had recorded it, and he took it upon himself to add the music in, which I thought added almost another character, you know, like a Greek chorus or something to drive the emotion. There were times when his guitar player is anxious or adds to the level of weight or sadness. It was really powerful. And I I, I liked the push-pull between Ethel and the music. When you say your brother Joe, that's Joe Pizzapia. Um, who is, who is known here in circles in Nashville, definitely. And, and, uh, beyond and edward what was your what were your thoughts when they when they said well you know how about instead of a reading now we now that we can't film instead of a reading how about a podcast i was just an innocent being carried along on the tide i had (laughs) i had i had never heard of podcast and i am still somewhat confounded by what they are (laughs) but i saw a uh, play that was that was going nowhere as it was you know uh, and um obviously i wanted to to see if it could be renewed in any any uh, legitimate form possible so i was i was enthusiastic about it but i really was uh pretty much on the sidelines you talk about a greek chorus i was even farther back than uh, <laughs> that who directed the podcast we kind of rolled with it without a director. I mean, the character had already been established through the work that Carolyn German and I did uh, when she directed the stage play. And my husband, Joe Pagetta, was the producer of the podcast. And we would listen back and he would give some notes and and I'm not really sure that this makes sense in that context or, you know, stuff like that it definitely helped when I started uh downloading the sound effects and and then listening back to Joe's my brother Joe's edits I was like well this is a little bit loud can we take this down here you know it was just we took notes on throughout the process so I guess that he and I directed it in that way okay that was yeah that was my that was my impression and then I realized have I just been remiss in not looking up the information did I not do my journalistic job (laughs) my due diligence 
Um, what kind of, ideally, Edward, what kind of life would you like to see this play have? I would like to see it on film. I would like to see it on stage again, you know, with Carrie in the role, because Carrie just blew me away with her performances. So, I, you know, she was more Ethel than I realized Ethel. And uh, so that would be that would be ideal to me. But I, I'd like to see it just done around the country in, you know, regional theaters. But, of course, the, the, the fatal flaw it has, it only has one character. It's not involving much of the community in a community theater production. Uh, but that would, that would be uh, what I would love to see. I would love to see it as a film. And, Carrie, what, what would you like? And ideally, how would you like your relationship with the play to continue? I would love to stage it again. And my thoughts and inspiration for the film are are tied to a film called Primo. It's a it's a one one person film based on the play. It's based on the book of Primo Levi, which was he was a an Italian Jewish man who went to Auschwitz. So it's basically him telling his story. So from the book they did this play. I think it was um Anthony Sher is the actor, and he was just incredible. But when I first watched it, I thought, how is this going to grip me? And within five minutes, I was transported. They did, they did it with such a minimal set. They just had sound effects and lighting, and it was a really muted set. And it, it was so compelling. I, I just went along for the ride, and it, I found it very impactful. So my... my career began as a theater critic, so I've always, I've always loved theater. I have to say that of all the theater that I've seen in my life, the ones, the, the shows that stay with me the most have been one-person shows. Well, Julie Harris, when she did the PBS, uh, or for PBS, the version of uh, The Bell of Amherst, that had the same effect that Primo had on uh, Carrie, I think. I just thought it was done so well, and it was just a uh, Victorian living room set and 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 Julie Harris. That was all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have when you have uh, a good actor, when you have the right actor for the role, um, and like I said, and, and Carrie, I mean, you you just in listening to it, it was the first time that I had ever seen or slash heard you perform apart from well some lottery uh, ads, yeah. <laughs> some Tennessee lottery ads. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you. It, it it's one of those it's just one of those performances where it's hard to imagine anyone else from even from the first listen from from the first time hearing it um did you are, are you from new york or from new jersey from new jersey as someone from new jersey who is um you know who who grew up close to where ethel did and who also comes from an immigrant family, what kind of connection did you feel there, if at all, to, to, uh, to Ethel, to the Rosenbergs and to Ethel? Yeah, I felt an incredible connection. The city that she describes, while it was a different time, isn't, isn't very different from the scents, the smells, the sounds of the city that I experienced and you know there's I, there's a lot of similarities between the Italian and the Jewish culture and being from northeast so a lot of the references were familiar to me as well 
Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, isn't there? Of, of, of especially mm-hmm. in terms like woven into into New York's, into the Northeast and into New York and New Jersey's fabric and history in particular, um, between uh, among Jewish Jewish and or between Jewish and, and Italian immigrants. What about uh, a pardon? Do you do you think? Do you hope? Or do you think that? there's going to be a time when the Rosenbergs are pardoned or that she is pardoned? I doubt it, and it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm not, I'm not much for symbolic uh, actions, you know. Uh, you know, ridding ourselves of our sin after we've had the joy of committing them. I don't uh, go for that. Very well put. <laughs> Nicely put. Um, well... Thank you both for thank you for taking the time to talk about this. Thank you. The Passion of Ethel Rosenberg was written by Edward Morris and produced for podcast by Carrie and Joe Pagetta. Ethel is played by Carrie Pagetta, reprising the role she originated for the play's premiere in Nashville in 2017. The original score was written and performed by Joe Pizzapia. I'm Natasha Sinyanovich. Thank you for listening.